0: As you're turning to John chapter 12, we'll be there in a few minutes. There's a question that happens very often in humanity and it's all over the internet. And that simply is what is Jesus all about? What is Jesus all about? Of course, there's all kinds of opinions as to what Jesus is about. Muslims believe he is a nice guy, a prophet of God, sort of like Muhammad that he spoke from his cradle right after his birth, declaring himself to be a good man who would pray, give to the poor, and be a good son to his mother. That's what Muslims believe. Mormons believe Jesus is the son of God, but completely and utterly distinct from God, and that he died for the sins of all people, and by the way, after his death, he took a trip to America. That's what Mormons believe. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is a created being who then created everything else and is of a lesser glory than God still a great guy but lesser glory and the official position of the organization known as American atheists is simply that Jesus didn't exist in the first place and they claim that since historians in Jesus day didn't write about Jesus he must not have existed which is also the logical fallacy the argument from silence and by the way we know of four historians who wrote extensively about Jesus Matthew Mark Luke and John But that's what they believe. Now, right now at this moment, probably every one of you and anyone listening to this message, even online, can easily agree with our concern about the heretical position of the Mormons and the Muslims, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the atheists. But what about these positions? One writer representing the estimated 80 million liberal Christians, professing Christians in the United States and Canada, wrote recently, quote, that Jesus advocated simple, equal, communal living. Code language for Jesus was a socialist. Quote, he also pressed for social and economic justice for which he paid the ultimate price, execution. So that's why Jesus died, because of his views on social and economic justice? That's why he died? How about this belief? Quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. And you say, well... I don't know many people who believe that. According to a study done this year by a joint effort between Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, 78% of American evangelicals believe that Jesus is a created being. These are churchgoers. These are people in church today who believe this. So there's great confusion about Jesus, even within the ranks of of the church attenders. And the fact is, what you understand about Jesus will make the difference in your eternal destiny. And if you don't properly understand Jesus as revealed in the only true source about him, and that is Holy Scripture, you cannot belong to him. And so your understanding of Christ is crucial, it's vital. And so that's our focus this morning. We're continuing to use John chapter 12 to do what we're calling a faith checkup, our faith is centered rightly on Christ, so all the diagnostic questions we've been asking to do this checkup have been centered on him. We've asked the question so far, do you love Christ? Do you worship Christ? Do you follow Christ? And today our question is, do you understand Christ? Do you understand him? And our text is John twelve twenty seven through 34. We need to rewind about 2,000 years back to April of about 30 AD. Jesus is just days from going to the cross Some Gentiles who have come to celebrate Passover have requested an audience with Jesus. And we saw this last time. Philip comes on their behalf to make this request, but John's gospel doesn't tell us if Jesus granted the request or not. But what he did do was he he gave an answer that confirmed that he is an offering, he is an offering for salvation to all who would comprehend his death, who would apprehend his death on their behalf and to all who would lose their life with his in terms of giving your whole self to Christ. All that you are belongs to him in repentance and in humility. In verse 24, Jesus spoke plainly of his own death and now he continues his speech to the disciples, seemingly to Philip and to Andrew, but it seems others are there as well. Verse 27, Jesus continues, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour Father glorify your name then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered others said an angel has spoken to him Jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not mine next time but today our primary focus is, is on uh, verses 27 through 34 and like we've done in previous messages we're just going to ask the primary question for this morning and then add some endings to that question and our question is do you understand christ do you understand christ and we'll add just one word to ask about three different aspects of christ that you need to understand to test your faith so first do you understand christ's resolve Do you understand Christ's resolve? What was it that he was determined to do? Liberals wrongly say that Jesus was executed because of his positions on economic and social justice. But scripture clearly teaches that Jesus was killed to pay the penalty for sin. And that was his resolve. That was his intention all along. Verse 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He, he says his soul is troubled. This is reminiscent of Psalm 42. He might even be quoting verse 6 of Psalm 42. My soul is cast down within me. And this word for troubled, it, it means strong inner turmoil. It literally means, we used to say this in Texas, that he's stirred up. That there's something happening. There's a stirring that's happening. And it's a, it's a perfect tense verb. It means that this wasn't something that he just suddenly realized. This is an ongoing turmoil, not something that just hit him all of a sudden. He didn't just, between verse 26 and 27, go, wow, I'm really depressed. or I really feel bad. This has been ongoing for him. Yes, as fully God, Jesus has always known what's going to happen. He's known every detail every exquisite pain that he's going to have to endure. But he's also a perfect, full human. And he's experiencing a, a very normal reaction, and as one scholar rightly put it, a realization which in the process of his suffering has repeatedly seized him of the darkness of the path on which he is led by God. I mean, we can't, we can't comprehend this. The implications of both the physical and the spiritual suffering that Jesus is about to endure is nothing less than staggering. He's about to die a a horrific death, but while he's dying a horrific death, he'll also bear the weight of sin, not just for one person or two people, but for you and 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 for you. you. All of that guilt combined together on his shoulders. We, We can't comprehend that. Second Corinthians 5.21 says that Jesus would be made sin. We cannot wrap our minds around that sort of agony. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You know what it's like to feel guilt. Jesus had your guilt and yours and yours and yours and yours poured on him. Every bit of it for every sin you've ever committed from the moment you were born to the last day of your life poured on him. That is Incomprehensible. Jesus would be entering the courtroom of heaven to be accounted as guilty, guilty, guilty on your behalf, on my behalf. Listen, Jesus didn't go to the cross emotionless in some sort of stoic resignation. He went as a human being. And he felt all the pain, he felt all the shame, he felt all the stigma associated with bearing the curse of sin i mean galatians 3 13 is staggering christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us what does that mean how do we even grasp that to become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree what did this feel like for him as a human being Hebrews 5, verse 7 comments on Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which would happen in just days from our text now. And it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Have you ever prayed so hard that you just get physically sick? That's what he did. And so Jesus asked, What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And the implied answer is, no, I should not say that. I should not pray that prayer. Now, if you know your Bible, that leads us to an interesting puzzle, doesn't it? Because in just a few days in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Seemingly exactly the same prayer that he just said, no, I should not pray that. But there's a couple of key differences that we need to understand. Here in John 12, Jesus is saying that he should not pray a prayer which would actually grant him avoidance of the cross, which would actually grant him a denial of his mission. That would be the wrong prayer, the wrong time. But here in John 12, he does pray a prayer. Father, glorify your name. And the answer from heaven happens in an instant. In verse 28, but in the garden, Jesus did not pray in absolute, get me out of here at all costs, prayer to his Father. He humbly prayed, basically, if there's another way, can we take it? Fully knowing that there was not another way. What are we seeing in Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in a few days? We're seeing his humanity. We're seeing him cry out to God in, in pain and in anguish, expressing that he already knows what the will of the Father is. He's just saying that it's not very pleasant. In fact, in the garden, Jesus would pray consistently with his desire to glorify his Father. Luke twenty-two forty-two records, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. In other words, glorify yourself. Glorify the Father. And ultimately in the garden, the prayer of Jesus was to give him strength for the trial immediately ahead. After crying out to God in the garden, if you read the rest of the gospel accounts of what happens at his arrest and at his trials and his crucifixion, Jesus is unstoppable in his resolve to get all the way to the cross. I mean, Peter even offers to try to rescue him and pulls out his rusty old sword and tries to hack his way to escape. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. And so it was that prayer in the garden that gave Jesus, humanly speaking, the resolve to take his mission all the way to the point of giving up his own spirit from his body to die. In fact, the Hebrews passage I referenced earlier goes on. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And listen to this. And he was heard because of his reverence. Well, wait a minute. This says that the prayers of Jesus were answered. And they were. Jesus prayed that the will of his Father would be done. And it was. And that the Father would save him from death. He did. Where is Jesus right now? He's alive at the right hand of the Father. So his prayers were answered. Just not in exactly the way that maybe in his humanity Jesus might have preferred. But he did answer those prayers. But here in John 12, 27, the focus is, is on that humanity of Christ, the, the real fact that he is fully human. He's aware of and he experiences the natural human recoil against death. We, we're repulsed by death. I mean, how many countless human beings through the ages at the point of their own death have simply said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. That's a normal human response And this points very strongly to the humanity of Jesus. He didn't come to earth as a superhero. He didn't descend in a spaceship. He didn't fly down with his cape and land on a building and look all Superman-like. He came as one of us, as weak as we are from a human standpoint. And this was necessary so that he could be a a perfectly corresponding sacrifice for sin, a one-to-one sacrifice. And so, as Jesus himself said so many times during his ministry, he had the resolve that he would fulfill his father's mission. He would die the death of a criminal. I think about Mary earlier in the same chapter who knew and believed and accepted that Jesus was going to die. She didn't try to stop him. He was her only way to salvation. But it was with such reverence and sadness and awe and worship that she anointed him with burial oil because she accepted his resolve to die. And when we went through that text, we we talked about how are we supposed to feel about the death of Christ? We must have his death to be saved, and yet he's the only perfect human being who's ever lived, and to watch him go to the cross is, is terrible. And so we have this mixed emotion of reverence and sadness and awe and worship do you understand Christ's resolve? He was going to go to the cross. By the way, Satan tested his resolve. The early part of the Gospel of Matthew records Satan saying, basically, and I'm paraphrasing, forget the suffering, just rule the world now. Now all you have to do is bow down to me. And he gave Jesus a way out. And Jesus said, get away from me. And he went all the way to the cross. Do you understand Christ's resolve? Here's a second diagnostic question. Do you understand Christ's purpose? Do you understand Christ's purpose? Jesus said at the end of verse 27, but for this purpose I have come to this hour, to this time to die. For what purpose? He prays it. Father, glorify your name. I love how Jesus just breaks into prayer at any time. And Jesus' prayer is answered immediately in verse 28. God the Father gives instantaneous affirmation that Christ's mission to glorify the Father has been successful, will be successful, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now this prayer of Jesus, that his Father would would be glorified, is the principle which has guided Jesus through his whole life. This is what he's lived by. Even when Jesus was a little kid, when he was 12 years old, he told his earthly parents when they finally found him in the temple after they'd been, he'd been missing for three days, he told them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? That's a godly, perfect way of saying, duh. I'm about my father's business. That's what I'm about. John four thirty four. Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus praying this prayer is completely consistent with how he's lived his life. And he triggers the voice of God the Father speaking audibly from heaven. This is obviously a special occasion. This is one of only three times during Jesus' earthly ministry in which a voice from heaven gives witness to his identity, to his authority, to the fact that he is sent by God. We heard the voice of God the Father at his baptism Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We heard the voice of God the Father at His transfiguration. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And on all three occasions, all three of them, God the Father is publicly affirming that He approves of the Son. Now, it's a little less obvious here in this text. How is it that God the Father is stating that he he has glorified his own name in the past and will again in the future uh, glorify his name? How is that stating an approval, an affirmation of the Son of God? Well, the entire life and ministry of Jesus to this point has been with the purpose of glorifying his Father or pointing upwards to heaven. And by saying that he has been glorified, by God the Father saying, yes, I have received glory God is saying, I put my stamp of perfection, of perfect approval on the entirety of Jesus' ministry and his life and his output. Every miracle was perfect. Every word was perfect. Every sermon was perfect. Every interaction was perfect. Every rebuke of false faith, perfect. God is confirming the perfection, the success of Jesus' ministry which, by the way, now must necessarily and logically include the fact that Jesus is sinless and faultless. And in a gospel which so is so saturated with the deity of Christ, again we have an affirmation of the deity of Christ. And how will God the Father be glorified in the future by Christ? By the suffering of the cross? And all that accompanies the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the subsequent birth of the church of Jesus Christ as Savior, who has now successfully paid the price for sin, and he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell those who would believe on the Lord. But we do tend to throw around this phrase in the church. We do throw around the phrase, the glory of God, or give God glory, or glorify God. What do we mean by that in the context of God's saving actions? In the context of God sending Jesus, his son, to die for the sins of all who we believe, how does that give God glory? What is the glory of God in his salvation, in his saving actions? Well, I want to give you some initial thoughts before we directly answer that question. Jesus' prayer is in exact accord with the Old Testament understanding of God's saving actions occurring ultimately for God's glory. Not for mine, but for God's glory. Psalm 79, verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Isaiah 63, 14. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Ezekiel 38, 23, I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Salvation by God has always been about glorifying God. This is also consistent with all of John's gospel. That the motivation for the entire ministry of Jesus is to glorify his father John 7, 18, Jesus seeks the glory of his Father who sent him. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 49 to 50, I honor my Father. I do not seek my own glory. And how is God the Father glorified in Christ? He's glorified in the complete obedience of the Son. We have trouble obeying God and we're imperfect. Jesus is perfect and he obeyed his Father. John ten seventeen, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. God the Father is glorified when Jesus would exercise the authority that was delegated to him by his Father. John fourteen thirteen. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 17, Father, the, or, the, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. So, bottom line, What does it mean when we say that God is glorified in the context of Him sending His Son to die, in the context of salvation? Basically, it means that God has put His attributes on display, that He has displayed Himself. And God is glorified in Christ's sacrifice because His salvation demonstrates and displays His attributes. Which ones? I would argue all of them, but I'll give you a few samples. Salvation of the cross demonstrates his wisdom. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucify the stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God. It provides salvation. This wisdom is so profound that the book of Ephesians says that angels learn by looking at us. How is it that these reprobates are going to heaven? That's God's wisdom. God is glorified in his justice. Romans 3 verse 26 says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He demonstrates that he is perfectly just. He is not a Santa Claus God who says, oh, you can get into heaven. I'll just wink at sin. He is totally just. All of the punishment that was due to you was poured out on Christ because he is a just and holy God and no sin goes unaccounted for. He demonstrates his grace. Hebrews 2.9, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone on the opposite side of the coin of grace he demonstrates his mercy Colossians 2 beginning in verse 13 you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses listen to this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside nailing it to the cross what is God's mercy? It is the list, or in your case, the book of sins that you have committed being nailed to the cross. And it's the cross of Christ, not yours. He demonstrates his wrath. Do not ever think that the wrath of God is somehow the dark side of God. The wrath of God, God is all good, and the wrath of God is part of his goodness because it's connected to his justice. Romans 5, verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, God is not a Santa Claus who just decides, I think I'll not pour out the wrath on you that you deserve. He did pour out the wrath that you deserve, just not on you. And of course, probably at the top of the list, he's glorified in his love. The verse prior to that, in Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know that elsewhere in the New Testament it says that Christ died in eternity past, meaning that it was always a done deal. You know that elsewhere in the New Testament it also says that God has loved you from eternity past? He loved you before you committed your first sin. He loved you before you committed your last sin. That's love. God's wisdom, His justice, His grace, His mercy, His wrath, His love all displayed in Christ going to the cross on our behalf. Jesus did not come to earth to preach social justice. He did not come to feed the poor. He did not come to feed the hungry. He did not come to heal the sick. He did not come to be a godly example. Although he did all of those things, he came to earth to die to the glory of his father. That was his purpose. His overriding concern was not for you first. You understand that? You were a means to an end. And that end, that goal is to point the light of magnificence to his Father. And by the way, the Father points the light of magnificence to the Son for his glorification of the Father. And by the way, the Father, at the request of the Son, sent the Holy Spirit to point the light of magnificence to the Son so that we might point the light of magnificence back to the Son who points the light of magnificence to the Father. What was Christ's purpose? It is to glorify his Father, and he does it through us, not necessarily just because of you we are a means to an end. And we get caught in a beautiful vortex of blessing that will haul us all the way to heaven for eternity and we get the benefit and God gets the glory. All in all, you're a fairly minor player in this drama. You are a trophy presented by Christ to the Father who presents it back to the Son. The entire the plan of salvation is one giant epic of love between God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit as they have loved one another within this triune one God, Godhead for all of eternity. And this plan was formulated to increase the expression of that love to others, and it is to you. It's phenomenal phenomenal do you understand Christ's resolve do you understand Christ's purpose finally do you understand Christ's conquest you understand Christ's conquest the voice from heaven is spoken affirming the deity of Christ affirming the success of Christ affirming the glory of the father and in verse 29 the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered that's one of the dumbest things ever others said an angel has spoken to him jesus answered this voice has come for your sake not mine looked like jesus had been speaking just to philip and andrew but now we're introduced to a crowd who's been listening and the jews pointed out or jesus rather pointed out that this voice was for the sake of the crowd but many or most of them apparently didn't get it they didn't understand John Calvin rightly points out how this illustrates the spiritual dullness of those listening to Jesus and who heard the voice of heaven. Listen to Calvin. He said, It was truly monstrous. I need to use that word in a sermon someday. It was truly monstrous that the multitude was so stupid, that's Calvin, as to remain unmoved by so open a miracle. Some were so hard of hearing that, that what God so distinctly uttered, they took for a confused sound. Others who were less dull made little of the majesty of the voice of God and said it was merely an angel who spoke. But men do the same today. God speaks plainly enough in the gospel and there reveals such power and energy of the Spirit as ought to shake the heaven and the earth. But for many, its doctrine is lifeless as though it were from mortal men. To others, the word of God is confused and barbarous, no different from thunder. What a great, Great observation. And and that dynamic happens today as well. That when God speaks through his word in a clear and a loud voice, when the word of God says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, most people hear, but they don't understand. They don't get the urgency of God's message of salvation, of repentance from sin. They don't get that as an unbeliever, you may not have time to keep thinking about it right now at this moment you might be thinking about lunch you might be thinking about anything else and the word of God is just so much thunder but if you're not in Christ it will be this very thunder that God points back to at your judgment to say why didn't you listen I was speaking and now Jesus makes a statement of conquest at the victory that's about to be wrought in him and through him and in his death at the cross and he emphasizes this victory by the double use of a greek word translated now Now i want to read some technical information to you don't try to remember this i just want to make a point this word ready for this according to one source is quote coextensive with the event of the narrative to put it as another greek source explains it it is a point in time simultaneously with the event of the discourse itself let me me give you the steve schwartz translation now means right now Not just a theoretical now, but even as I am speaking. Now means now. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. The cross is literally hours away. Conquest conquest is now. There's three parts to this conquest. The first part of the conquest, the judgment of the world. Now is the judgment of this world. How is the cross judgment? Because those who are not drawn to the cross of Christ will not receive its benefits, will not receive forgiveness. And the world crucifying Christ now condemns themselves that all who continue to see Christ in any other light than the sacrifice of God for the sins of humanity will be judged by the resurrected Christ. Here's the judgment. Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It is the judgment of the world. You must come to the cross or you will come to judgment. Or if I could put it as one evangelist said, all of you will come to Jesus, either as his child or as his criminal. One of the two. Second part of the conquest, the defeat of Satan. He says that the ruler of this world will be cast out. That can only be Satan. Ephesians 2 verse 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 calls him the god of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. 1 Peter 5.8 calls him the roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And it's interesting that now in John's gospel, all of a sudden Satan starts to play a bigger role. Things are heating up. Things are coming to a head. The battle is coming. Right before leaving the upper room at the last supper Jesus said in John 14:30 I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming he has no claim on me who is coming Judas indwelt by Satan himself was on his way John 16:11 Jesus declared the ruler of this world is judged and he declares Satan judged Satan's authority is taken and now the kingdom of the world will slowly be taken from him as well. And this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. He was allowed by God to assume control under God's sovereignty of the world when Adam and Eve led humanity into sin and into depravity and into death. And Satan has been causing chaos and pain and destruction ever since then. He sees the earth as his possession, as his kingdom. He even had the impudence to offer Christ second place in the kingdom as long as Satan is first. Why is the world Satan's domain? Why does the world belong to Satan as it were under the sovereign umbrella of God? Well, primarily because every person born in the world belongs to him. Jesus told the evil rulers of Israel, you are of your father who the devil every person by, on earth by default is part of the kingdom of darkness but now through the cross of Christ Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9 that you've been called out of the darkness into his marvelous light in other words through the cross Satan is going to start losing kingdom citizens one by one by one by thousand by thousand by million by million he's losing ground countless people have started changing sides And ultimately, Revelation 20 says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a third part of the conquest and that is the victory of the saints. The victory of the saints. These are precious verses to us. In verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He says he'll be lifted up from the earth. He he used that language in John 3 and then John 8 and it always refers specifically to his resurrection. I'm sorry, to his crucifixion. And this is really important because on on several occasions, the leaders of Israel tried to kill him and they always tried to stone him to death. But that wasn't the prophesied way that Messiah would die. Jesus would not be stoned to death as the leaders had tried to do. They would... He, he would die according to God's plan in crucifixion, the death prophesied of him in Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says he will draw all people to himself? Well, this is a good time to not take one single verse as the basis for an entire theology. Nothing in all of John's gospel even hints at a universal salvation for all people. In fact, it, it speaks very heavily against it John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 8.21, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Contrast that to John 14, that I go away to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going, I'm bringing you to myself. John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So who are the all people? Well, very simply, all whom the Spirit of God calls and regenerates as explained in John chapter 3, when the Holy Spirit blows as he will and he regenerates those that are called by God and those who come believing by faith as explained in John chapter 6 multiple times, I think the easiest way to understand this is simply look backwards a few verses at the context. Do you remember who he's answering? Look with me at verse 20. Now among those who went up to the, to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Remember we said these are Gentiles. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is his answer to the Greeks, to the Gentiles of this passage. Not all people in the sense of every single human being, but all people in the sense of every group of people. How does the book of Revelation put it? Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. The salvation is offered to Jew and to Gentile alike. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. And I'm really glad because all of us Greeks here are very happy that God has offered salvation to all. So Jesus is announcing that now, now is a threefold conquest the judgment of the world, the defeat of Satan, and the victory of the saints. When was your salvation in point in time really procured? I would point to John chapter 12, which points to the cross. When he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Yes, he was speaking of those literally executing them. But I think in the mind of Christ, we would accurately surmise that he was thinking of you as well. So what would the people do? Would they fall on their knees and worship Christ and say, thank you for the cross that's coming? No, they would not believe. They wouldn't believe. Verse 34, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The, the crowd said that they heard from the law. It's used in this case as a generic term for all the Old Testament, that the Messiah, the Christ, remains forever. Maybe they're thinking of the text we read earlier this morning, Isaiah 9, 7, that Messiah will reign on earth quote, from this time forth and forevermore. Maybe they're thinking of Psalm 89, verse 36, that the throne and the rule of Messiah will be as long as the sun endures. But there's a dilemma. The Messiah that we've been waiting for is supposed to abide forever. He's supposed to reign forever. The Son of Man that you're referring to as yourself is going to die. Then how can the Son of Man be Messiah death has a finality to it which makes it really incompatible with the idea of remaining forever i am messiah but i'm going to die i will remain forever but i'm going to die and they can't put the two together and this is so sad because in this statement the crowd is revealing the state of their heart listen they believe they need a king they just don't believe they need a savior And in the next verse, which we'll examine next time, Jesus warns them that the darkness is about to overtake them. Their unbelief is about to doom them. They did not understand Christ. And in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. I pray that you do, because unless you do understand Christ, the darkness will overtake you. One more thing I want you to understand about Christ. Sort of a bonus point. We'll just call it, do you understand Christ's thunder? Do you understand his thunder? Remember how he humiliated himself on our behalf by coming to earth as a human to die, to die on a cross so that God his Father might be glorified in his perfect obedience and that God the Father in affirming his own glory, he, he spoke like thunder. We just saw this. Well, the Old Testament is actually filled with the thundering of God in which he affirms his own glory, his own power, his own right to rule over humanity. At Mount Sinai, Exodus nineteen sixteen, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Three verses later, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. Exodus 20, verse 18, now when all the people saw the thunder, how do you see thunder? It must be big. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. God declares in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. Job 40, verse 9, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Psalm 18, verse 13, the Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. It's all over the Old Testament. Then you get to the New Testament and the thunder disappears. It's gone. God has come to earth not in thunderous glory, but in the person of Jesus Christ a humble man like us to meet us at our point of need speaking not in thunder but in a dying son. Now we get just two references to thunder. The first one is kind of humorous. Jesus gave nicknames to James and John when they wanted to have God rain fire on a town. He said, you guys are sons of thunder. And then we get this voice from heaven in our text right now. That's it. That's all we get. Until the book of Revelation, when the power and the might of God is revealed both on heaven and on earth through the voices of God's angels, through the voice of God himself, through the voice of God's people. And now thunder comes back with a vengeance revelation 4 verse 5 from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder revelation 6 verse 1 now i watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and i heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder revelation 8 verse 5 then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were peals of thunder rumbles flashes of lightning and an earthquake Revelation 10 verse 3, he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, it was, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Revelation 11 verse 19, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning. Rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. Revelation fourteen two, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. Revelation sixteen eighteen. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. But there's one more The last thunder in the Bible. Revelation 19, verse 6, a voice like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. That thunder happens in celebration of three events. And see if you can tell who the star of these events is. The first event, the thunder peals in celebration of the reign of Almighty God who is about to take his place as king on the earth. Who's the star of that show? Jesus Christ. The second event that's celebrated is the marriage supper of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ to his bride, those saved from their sins. And the third event that the Thunder celebrates and points to is the imminent return of Christ in all his true glory bestowed upon him by the Father then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Do you remember how John's gospel started? It started... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word of God, who came as a humble man to die for the sins of all who believe, will return as the glorious and glorified Word of God, clothed in all the glory bestowed on Him by His Father, for His faithfulness to go to the cross. Listen, Jesus played the long game. He kept the big picture in view, and here it is because he faithfully glorified his Father and went all the way to the cross for you, and I'll bet you can almost recite this with me, that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. You must understand Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. You've given us Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel and John's gospel. You've given us the countless, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies and and allusions to Christ in the Old Testament. You've given us the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament who is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, appearing to his people and ministering to them You've given us all the information about Christ in the epistles of Paul and and Peter and, and James and Jude and the writer of Hebrews. And finally, in the book of Revelation, you have shown us the glorified Christ. The one who has accomplished the work of the cross, who even now is seated at your right hand, having been victorious. Now having earned the right to judge the world having earned the right to judge Satan and having earned the right to procure victory for the saints. We thank you for the conquest of Christ. We thank you for his victory. We thank you for the resolve of Christ that at any moment he could have said that ultimate prayer, Father, save me, get me out of here. And as he himself said, you would have sent legions and legions of angels to save him but he did not pray that prayer and so what we're left to do is to just honor you and to thank you for all eternity we were not worthy of salvation we have brought nothing to you that you want you have brought nothing that you need all we've brought to you is depravity and rebellion and sin And we praise you and thank you for reaching out to us from eternity in love to save us. And for a man or a woman who is here who has not understood Christ, I pray that this would be the day. Because as he has promised so many times in his word, today may be the day he returns in judgment. And so Lord, let not another day pass before the one who needs to repent, who needs to express their sorrow and grief over their own sin might come to you and understand Christ and comprehend and apprehend the cross for themselves. We pray these things all for the glory of God. Amen.